0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Finding Peaks. I'm Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer at Peaks Recovery. Uh, I'm very excited today to be joined by Samantha Archuleta, IOP Therapist at Peaks Recovery, and back again, back again, Lauren Atencio, Clinical Director of our Men's Program, and we are here to talk about um, our experiences at the Winter Symposium. We just uh, completed uh, attending the Winter Symposium here in Colorado Springs. And it's just kind of a conference where uh, a fair amount of the focus is on mental health, but most of it honestly is on addiction. And uh, we all had about three and a half days or so to attend as many sessions and have as many conversations as we could. And so um, we decided that today for Finding Peaks, we would just kind of uh, talk through some of the things that we learned uh, and some of the things that we experienced while we were uh, participating. So um, first up... Uh, the first event that we went to, and, and the three of us were all there, we, uh, we got to be a part of uh, listening to a panel, including our uh, CEO and founder, our CEO, uh, Brandon Burns, talk about um, uh, the natural medicine. Um, and um, obviously, we've had a lot of discussion on Finding Peaks about the use of natural medicine. And, um, and so I just kind of wanted to start off with you guys. Like, what did you hear maybe new from that discussion? Um, on the panel were a couple of MD doctors, a counselor, and then um, kind of a politician, I guess, if you will. Uh, he does not they,
1: like that title.
0: He did not like the title <laughs> politician, but if it, it, it fits. <laughs> yeah. And he was a good politician, I'll be honest. He was. Exciting. So, um, what did you guys pick up on?
2: I think the thing that stood out to me the most was, um, and I am going to butcher this probably, but the contraindications between SSRIs and psilocybin um, in how those who do take SSRIs, they actually might not be able to engage in psilocybin therapy as effectively um, because some of those receptors are kind of blocking them. And again, I might be butchering this. I don't know all of the technical medical terms, but it was just so interesting to me to really hear that, you know, the SSRI portion of it is actually taking away some of your ability to really engage with the psilocybin and, and not allow for you to really kind of engage in those processes. I, I thought that was really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think hearing that from uh, a couple of medical doctors actually, yeah. and then the conversation that I had with one of the panelists who's also been on the show, uh, Kevin, um, really I what struck it, what's, what was striking for me is that um, when we kind of pushed aside, maybe some of the some of the excitement around it or maybe some of the mystique around like taking uh psilocybin or something like that like this is you know pretty serious medicine yeah um and there are important considerations to have to include uh medication interactions and uh the other thing that kevin was talking to me about too is like there it does open one up to potential bad actors too and making sure that you have trustworthy people. And, and, you know, it's likely most beneficial of good licensed people that operate underneath, um, a board of regulations and that sort of thing, uh, to operate with their license. And so to me, I think that was, I think it was helpful because like, I think we spent a lot of time talking about the hope of all of it and it is really exciting. Um, and there's limitations. And I think, uh, to me, it really was like, this really needs to be taken very seriously too. And it isn't something that's just like, you know, like going to be like the 1960s or something. So Sam, what what did you hear?
1: I think one of the other kind of limitations that they spoke to that felt important was serotonin syndrome and the risk of even combining your SSRI with psilocybin or other of the natural medicines that are coming up and that a lot of doctors are saying you need to be off everything to be able to do that. And that's a scary thing for people on antidepressants to come off of those because for many people that saved their life. And so to take that risk of Coming off what saves your life, it's something that can enhance your life to such benefit, is scary and at the risk of it not even working. Right. We even talked about that, right? Like uh, talking
2: to a client and they had been on um, SSRIs for a really long time and wanting to explore this process more, but also just being really scared of like, if I come off this, am I going to be able to handle my emotions? Am I gonna be able to regulate in a way that is appropriate for me because these medications have kind of helped me stay at this baseline. And so I, it was it was a really interesting thing because there is this part of us, right, that like don't want to dog on medications at all, but if we can reach into this industry and really go full force with the psilocybin, the MDMA, the ketamine, all of these different kind of modalities that are starting to roll out, what could we be doing? Right. We, I think we kind of put ourselves in a little bit of a like box with medications at times and again, not bagging medications, but maybe there's more that we can be doing that we aren't exploring because we're just so heavily reliant as a society on medications.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great point. And the other thing that, um, I had a conversation later in the conference too, with, uh, one of my old mentors from 15 or 20 years ago. And she was like, listen, I've done mushrooms and there's no way you can tell me that those things are going to be therapeutic. And, um, I had the opportunity to kind of talk to her about like the set and setting and like making sure that like it's directive and, and intentional and all of that. And so to me, even just that little conversation, feels helpful too, to be reminded like this, this is an exciting time, but it's also like time to have some caution as well. So.
2: I think I went to another um, panel discussion about harm reduction, and I think this kind of falls into that discussion as well, right? Um, something that the speaker said that really stuck out to me is the one of the biggest downfalls that this field does is we don't ask the client how they want to recover. We just tell them how they want to recover, right? Like, this is what you need to do, and if you don't do it, you're going to relapse. And um, the thing that was really cool is, like, why are we... N- there, he said that there's m- more relapses with cancer, diabetes, all these different things. Those diseases are constantly are relapsing. So why do we vilify addiction relapse so much? Why do we vilify mental health relapse so much when this is a actual mental health disorder, when it's actual physical disease, we're discounting the idea of relapse when... No, that's part of the process. So tell me how you need to be able to approach your recovery in order to feel
1: like you have some autonomy and you can kind of take it on your own. Well, and I think talking about psilocybin with SSRIs, we, we've pigeonholed people, especially yeah. if they don't get to benefit from psilocybin now because we've done SSRIs for so long. We've pigeonholed people to this way that we thought for the time was great. And over here is this other opportunity for healing that some people aren't going to have access to. And I think that's a scary thing to think about in the same sense of, we're going to tell you the right answer for now. And there's these other answers that are coming up that might be better.
0: Yeah. When I think, I think, so this, this leads me to talk about, uh, one of the other talks that we also, the three of us went to, which was about kind of the models of care and that was toward the end of the conference, um. And uh, the presenter, um, who is a physician from uh, the Menninger Clinic in Houston, talked about um, all of the models of care. And he started talking about, the first one he talked about was the moral model of care, which means looking at substance use as kind of a moral failing, like you are falling short and you are not uh, doing good enough and you need to maybe repent and try harder. And what I appreciated about his discussion is, first of all, I mean, that is... um, the aa model is rooted in both that and also the medical model of care and we can get to that in a second but like what i appreciated about him talking about it is he was using it in in reference to um one of his clients who would benefit from that who wanted to kind of seek a faith-based recovery mm-hmm. that would use kind of that moral um language uh as a motivator for healing and recovery and you know certainly when i hear that moral model of care like it hits a cord in me um that is uh well uncomfortable i'll just put it that way it's certainly not a way that i choose to operate um but that doesn't mean that my way is always right and and he did talk about that bias that like we can fall into our models of care and how we think about recovery um and become pretty attached to it but but his point of the whole overall thing was that all of these models of care have merit as long as they're kind of fit in Uh, with the appropriate client. I mean, that was one of my takeaways from that.
1: Right. I think our chief operating officer, Clinton, he actually brought up like it requires agility on our end to be able to say this is what the client's asking for. This is how we meet them. And then we can bring our model, other models, and I can pull on you and you who have different model approaches to help me fully see this client and meet them where they want to be met, whether that be medical model, moral model, whatever they come from and meet them around that.
2: Yeah. And I think... Um, We did do a Finding Peaks with Kevin uh, Franciotti a while ago, and, and this, like, makes me think of what he said is that he went through the normal process with treatment. He did the whole treatment thing, right? And he finally went to his family and said, this is what I need. I need to go do this kind of, um this is going to be my process in recovery. And they listened, right? So, like, where... I think as an industry, when do we stop listening? When do we start listening? When do we open up to the moral model might work for you, abstinence all the way. But, you know, you might need a different kind of model. There might be that self-medication model. You know, I am self-medicating because my whole self feels so dysregulated. I don't know what to do with it. And so being able, I think it just goes into so beautifully, like every individual client is going to look different. And if we as a whole peaks whatever, continue to treat everybody the same, then people aren't gonna get better.
0: Yeah. Well, certainly, um, I think the it what feels like the most inclusive model is kind of what we are trying to embrace as an organization, which is called the biopsy psychosocial um he called it spiritual. We might call it experiential, uh, existential. or existential. Sorry, uh, model of care. Thanks for it. <laughs> um, model of care where we really do try to encompass a fair amount of that, like with mental health and with the body, and then also with kind of that meaning and purpose component. But like, it does leave gaps. It does. Um, that that I think we need to be attuned to with our with our clients as well, if they really need more than. AA or or moral moral model of uh, care.
1: Yeah, well, and I think even considering the medical model of some of our clients come in with disabilities and things like that, and traditional outpatient, inpatient isn't actually formulated for minority populations in general, and especially people with disabilities. And so being able, I think Peaks, we do a pretty good job of being able to take what we're working with, existential, all of these other pieces, and say, okay, let's meet them here. And I think that talk really encouraged me that we're on the right track to do the right things for clients as the client wishes. I think going into another, I'm just jumping all
2: over the place, but another talk I went to, which is incredible, I wish I knew her name, um, but she presented on complex PTSD. um, And one thing that this brings up for me is diagnoses even, right? She kind of talked about how complex ptsd for those who don't know actually really shows up a lot like borderline personality disorder and so a lot of people are misdiagnosed with borderline personality disorder when they have complex ptsd another thing she brought up which was just like crazy to me was that complex ptsd symptoms actually mirror a lot of the autism symptoms as well so then there's this whole other discussion around diagnosis right if i have a client come in and i automatically say you have borderline personality disorder, and I start treating that client for borderline personality disorder, but they actually have complex PTSD, I'm not treating them the way that they need to be treated. So even diving deeper into like our diagnosis process, how do we do that? How long does it take us? What labels are we putting on
1: people? And how do those labels affect affect their care? Right. I think speaking to autism, I have that background in autism that we speak about. And Having those overlap is actually scary because with autism, there's a very um, typical and research way to treat that. Whereas complex PTSD, there's an autist. We're kind of figuring that out through the research now. And the fear of misdiagnosing that and treating it appropriately feels like it's our responsibility to start to do the research and deep dive into that.
2: Yeah, I mean, complex PTSD isn't even in the DSM, but it's so huge within all of our clients and so how do we get more information on that when there's not a lot of information on that?
0: How did, how did she even define complex? Like what makes PTSD complex?
2: A lot of it is attachment wounds. So she, it was really cool because she said, I'm not going to talk about trauma. I'm going to talk about wounding because trauma is wounding. So essentially with complex PTSD, we had a lot of relational attachment wounds as children. And therefore in our adult lives, it's harder to connect. Um, We might lash out more. We might, you know, throw fits. We have a hard time making eye contact. We, you know, like all of these different things because essentially this attachment wound from childhood now has followed you into your adult self and you are just scared of the world. Everything is scary and you find your safe people, but what happens when you lose those safe people? Um, And so she really, I mean, she did a beautiful job at just kind of explaining how complex PTSD shows up within our clients, and then also how do we treat those symptoms? How do we actually just be there? She, that was one of her biggest things, is like all my clients need is just somebody to talk to because they have so many attachment wounds in their lives that they don't have somebody to talk to most of the time. And so creating that safe space for our clients is so huge because complex PTSD is huge within peaks, I would say. Um, yeah,
0: Yeah. And not just within, not just within, things
1: everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I think of like rupture and repair in therapy and like we have a rupture with a client or within our staff, we get to repair that. And that's part of healing those wounds and it feels scary in the moment and unsafe and insecure, but when we can actually repair it, it's healing those like long-term wounds, which helps us grow and be able to make better eye contact, lash out less, have better connection
0: okay so then it, it, i'm going to pivot back to the model of care just for a second because i i also went to a talk by kevin mcculley who was on with brandon and i on this show um i don't know a couple months ago i think and he um he had the video called pleasure unwoven which is uh, pretty ubiquitous in the in substance use field and he he actually loves to kind of poke fun at himself for that video um and he went through kind of the model of care uh, the medical model and how Where the disease model came from for any diseases and the germ theory and all of that and he gave all this great background um one of the things he talked about which certainly kind of i found to be eye-opening was um kind of how little genetic predisposition plays into this that um he called it uh either like uh resilience genetic resilience so people that are less likely to become addicted or people that are a little more susceptible to it but he said It isn't as common as you might think. Um, and he even mentioned that, um, in, in native people, like we all think that there's a genetic predisposition to it. And he said that genetically there isn't there, there's no predisposition to it, which led him to talk about how he believes, and he talked about it on this podcast too, but one of the biggest factors in, um, substance use recovery is actually just safe housing Mm -hmm. and, and meaning and purpose. And like, that is certainly what, um can be lacking at times for that uh, particular culture uh, for a variety of reasons. And um, and that's what kind of propagates the alcohol use problem um, for that culture. And it isn't, doesn't have anything necessarily to do with genetic predisposition. I found that to be um, really pretty interesting.
2: That is cool. And something, and I'm going to keep talking about the complex PTSD stuff, okay, we'll but something she kind of relating to this though is like, well, some of her clients will come in and be like, "I don't really have a lot of trauma. My like my my growing up was really good." Da, da, da. And then she'd be like, "Okay, well, what was going on with your mom when she was pregnant with you?" So even looking at the in utero stuff that happens, the in utero stress, yeah. and how if my mom loses her husband or something while she's pregnant, that's going to take an effect on me, even in the womb. And I know that gets all like,
0: no, I well, he actually talked about this. Yeah. It's the epigenetics, right? Where it isn't uh, your DNA, but like it's these. And he had a picture, and it's way too—it's way over my head. But yeah, how, like, it isn't like generational trauma and generational addiction and all that sort of thing. It might not be like in our actual genes, but it might just be kind of implanted in the genes. And he—he actually used the example of um, hunger, like people uh, that were in concentration camps in World War II. Wasn't their kids, but their grandkids. Um, had issues with diabetes and that sort of thing, and they believe it's linked to the epigenetics of people um, coming out of uh, concentration camps. That's crazy. That is crazy.
1: Well, I think epigenetics paired with then, if mom lost her husband and now her attachment to men looks different, Mm -hmm. baby's attachment to men is going to look different. And I think taking into account both of those factors, we're kind of doubling down on these things that are going to impact our attachment and our complex PTSD and then the way that we treat it.
2: Another thing, too, is that we've we've actually been talking about this a lot, too, is like, how do we talk about this stuff with our clients, right? Like, I think Lisa Smith, one of our, um, she does amazing family work with Reclaim Recovery, really kind of talked to us all about verbiage in this big way, right? Like, okay, so we have people struggling. How do we put words to that struggle, right? Because if you have a woman who had just had a baby and she had just lost her husband and you ask her, okay, what's the plan? She doesn't know what the plan is. She has a baby to take care of and a husband to grieve. And so how do we even start to change like, yeah, this must be hard. And so let's sit together and make a plan. Even going into codependence, right? If we're telling everybody they're codependent, you're always telling people they're wrong. We are codependent beings. We need each other to survive. So when people say that codependent is a bad thing, it kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit because we absolutely are codependent can it be harmful at times? Yes. But then what do we call it then, right? We just call it like maybe uh, an attachment issue instead of just putting these labels on it.
0: I mean, that's a great segue to a session that Samantha that I went to um, by Dr. Robert Weiss, who unfortunately was sick. So he had a, he appeared by video, which but it was actually a great uh, presentation. And um, it was called the myth of codependency. And he actually challenges us to begin to use the word pro dependency Mm -hmm. and really kind of relabeling like never using the word enabling just like uh lisa talked about um and just really um it's just the support because he he talked about kind of um the beginning of the term codependency actually comes from aa and the aa big book tend to be written toward men uh who were alcoholics and then the women were the enablers and so it, it has kind of uh there's an undertone to the word codependency, that it is directed toward women. And certainly a lot of the first books on codependency were kind of written in that direction as well. So it has those undertone undertones. And he talked, he laid out this example of like, you know, like if my partner of 15 years got a cancer diagnosis and I quit my job and, or I got an extra job, sorry, to pay all the bills and I took care of him and I took the kids to school and I did all the things while he was recovering or, healing or battling cancer or sick with cancer everyone would praise me right like it would be i would be put on a pedestal but when i do the exact same behaviors for somebody struggling with addiction even and mental health people call me an enabler Mm -hmm. and um and i thought that was a great point to begin to challenge some of that that language of codependency that is meant to be kind of pejorative in a way or at least has become that i think
1: codependency and enabling are the two words that are Gaining traction with the negative connotation towards attachment Mm -hmm. and perpetuating this um, attachment isn't always healthy and it's dangerous and it's unsafe. When in reality, it's exactly what many people need to heal is healthy, safe attachment. Mm -hmm. And if we can shift our language, even at peaks that we've discussed, like shifting our language around those two words specifically to help us heal through attachment, not be fearful of and cautious of.
2: Well, even looking about what enabling means. Like, I think if you're telling your mom, a mom to a 20-year-old not to enable her child anymore, that's all she's done. Enabling is what we do. We change our children's diapers. We, you know, we we enable them to live their lives or whatever that looks like. And so if I'm sitting with a mom and I'm like, don't let him back in your house. But then this mom is also sitting over here scared to death because fentanyl deaths are through the roof right now that's not a good direction, right? I think we need to meet that person where they're at. Like, tell me what you're feeling. And I'm not going to tell you what to do because you're going to do what you need to do. But I do want to help you move through these emotions in any way I can.
0: And I think, um, I think you bring up such a great point. And um, as a parent, like when, when you have a baby, right? The baby's fully dependent on you. Mm -hmm. And then you know slowly but surely their little circle of existence begins to remove itself you know like they slowly become they get little aspects of independence when they go to preschool and kindergarten and elementary school and go to a sleepover and like they be and have their own friends that you don't know the parents and like slowly but surely but but then when it's interrupted like there's almost like a development of relationships if you will that there can be rupture in those developments where it gets kind of stuck in a place where I'm I'm caring for somebody that maybe should be a little bit more independent. But um, our words have power, it turns out, too, and, and these things, um, I don't know, they matter. And so I, I did appreciate a lot of that, the, that new terminology.
1: Well, and I think teaching about boundaries gets the word enable can be removed. We can say, hey, what boundaries do you need for you and to keep you safe and to keep you, to be able to be attached to your child in a healthy way mm-hmm. versus how do we get you to stop enabling your kid.
2: Right. And I think Lisa covered that so beautifully in her presentation
1: of what does family
2: recovery look like? What does the family disease look like? Right. Family recovery is communication. Family recovery is saying, hey, I'm going to set this boundary with you and I'm going to explain to you why I'm setting this boundary to you. I'm not just going to say, don't come to my home. I'm going to say, you know, I have a lot of hurts. I am still healing in my own recovery process. Being able to just put words to what you're feeling, because I think we as a whole, we get stuck in the content of things. You did this, you did this, you did this. And underneath it's just all fear. Let's talk about the fear, because let's stop talking about the enabling. Let's talk about you're scared. And that's okay to be scared. Your child is struggling and you just wanna
1: help them. Well, and speaking to the fentanyl crisis, like Like, uh your child could die. Your child could not be back. And to say like, don't do anything for them. That doesn't feel fair to ask a parent or ask someone that loves you and cares about you to to just like say no. We But what does feel fair is what's good for you, yeah. what's healthy for you to grow through that.
2: Yeah, Jason and I attended um, a really uplifting, it was really interesting and, and the woman presenting was, was really great, but it was um, fentanyl deaths in children. And in El Paso County, the rates have just like skyrocketed for fentanyl de- deaths in children. We're talking... 15 months to 17 years old, we're not even talking the whole rest of the people that are here, right? And so this is a real thing that we have to talk about, but we have to talk about it the right way because people are hurting and struggling, and we just, we need to help them, not push them away.
0: Yeah, that was going to be the last one I talked about, too. It was, it was a session, uh, it was a medical examiner here at El Paso County came and presented literally um, eight cases of children who have died in El Paso County over the last 16 months from fentanyl overdoses. And she was a great presenter, is very thorough. And I'm sitting there like, why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> why am I listening to this? But I learned some things about fentanyl, and then it, it felt really important um, to say this crisis is real and it isn't out there. These are these were children. some I mean, all the way down to 15 months old that died from fentanyl overdose um, because of careless actions, of course, of adults around them. And, um, that's real and it's, it's a real, uh, crisis. And, and to your point, I think there were, I think 138 deaths of the unhoused in Colorado Springs too. And most of those were also from a uh, fentanyl overdose. And, um, it, you know, it just, it just really hit me that this you know, this disease, if you will, is really hitting the marginalized people or people who can't protect themselves as well. And it was a powerful uh reminder um of what we do too is that we really work pretty diligently to save lives. Um, and I don't really want to end this session on <laughs> such a, such a town now. Um, you know all in all I think uh it is always fun to go and get around um people in the field. Um I know Uh, We at Peaks, we really are working diligently to disrupt the industry, Um, but it's so important too, like it isn't Peaks against the world either, it's, we have to, we get to hopefully lead a charge to disrupt the industry and and we can't do it all on our own, like there are so many people um, that are suffering and, and I think the more we kind of share ideas and have these conversations, I mean we we all during talks were texting about how we can even keep course correcting our curriculum to make sure that it's up to date and and doesn't contain inflammatory language or um is kind of incorporating uh the latest research and that sort of thing which is um a fun and diligent process so um with that i i thank you both uh, uh for joining me today um for those watching if you haven't uh, followed us yet on the social medias, the Instagram and Facebook and that sort of thing, please do, um, check out our TikTok account as well. It's always fun. Um, and then you can scroll, uh, later and then, um, and then also find us on, uh, the iTunes store as well. So that's it. Have a good one.